Welcome to Modifier, the show that dives into the climate crisis in Belize. I'm Andre. And I'm Digna. And we will talk about the cruise industry and the development of cruise ports in Belize. And how it's an ongoing pattern in the Department of Environment's failure to hold developers accountable for environmental destruction and political representatives' failure to use their power to uphold the assets of their portfolios. Uh, later on in this episode, we'll be having Lisa Karn of Fragments of Hope to talk a little bit about the impacts of cruise tourism on the reefs. But before that, we are going to uh, be sharing an interview with Michael Ashcroft, one of the major investors in the Port of Belize uh, that was on Open Your Eyes earlier this week. And uh, we're just going to talk about uh, our responses to what he's saying and um, whether or not what he's saying is actually true. Uh, but first of all, Tigna, I just wanted to get a sense of what, what is, what's your take on cruise tourism? Um, when did you, did you even learn that was a thing? Well, I've known about cruise tourism for like as long as I can remember. Um, up until late last year, actually, I had a totally different view of cruise tourism. I've always seen it as a luxurious form of travel and something that I personally have always wanted to experience. Um, I had been aware of some of its environmental impacts, such as their waste disposal and the noise pollution and air pollution. However, that it was just that, like, to me, it was still nothing to change my mind as in think, oh, well, it's not bad or, or something like that. Because like I said, late last year after graduating, I was thinking about how I could do the most of my 20s while still working, but enjoying. And I was like, you know what, maybe I should work in the cruise industry like I, I, I've seen people working there and pictures and I'm jealous of them and, and, and I personally want to experience this but after meeting with you and uh, uh, the ports that are in approval here in Belize and the more I read the more I'm finding out about how what cruise tourism really is and that has kind of shifted my point of view in what I once wanted to do and looked forward to. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry for being responsible for ending <laughs> prematurely your cruise, uh, your cruise career. Uh, I, I can't, uh, I can't make up for it. I, I don't have a job to give you that that's nearly as luxurious as that. Um, uh, the benefit though, is that now you'll never get stuck on a cruise ship, which seems True. to happen. It happened like last year with a couple of the ships, you know, being stuck, uh, people being stuck on them for quite a while due to COVID and nobody wanting to receive them. And, there being outbreaks on those ships. Uh, that's so interesting, though, that 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 you wanted to be part of um, an employee of it and understand why, because it's, you know, in Belize, where there's hardly any employment, um, it's very tempting to, like, look at cruise, uh, the cruise industry as something that you'd want to participate in and be a part of. For me, I have only ever understood cruise tourism as something that you do when you retire. Um, you know, my grandparents on my dad's side, they would do a couple cruises every couple of years, uh, you know, since they hit their like mid 60s, I think, maybe before that, probably before that, um, you know, they just always been my grandparents in my memory. So I can't remember when they were young. Um, but with the with their trips, it always seemed to me like something they did because they were like, no, we have the time, we have the money. And they're like, we want to see the world and we want to do that comfortably. And that's what cruise tourism seemed to me is like, I, if you want to see 10 places really quickly, um, but you don't want to have that sort of backpacker stress where you're constantly like picking up a bag and moving around, 
and you don't want to be hopping on planes all the time. Uh, I think that's why people like cruise tourism. That's my sense of as to why they enjoyed it. You know, you get to go everywhere, maybe for a little for a day or two, and at the end of the day, you don't have to really worry about where you're going to sleep because you're going to sleep on the boat again. So that's always been my impression of it, um, and I'm really. I don't know. I, I'm I'm curious as to what people are currently thinking about cruise tourism and how it's holding up. I follow a couple of different of cruise blogs on Facebook, and it's it's very interesting to see how people's opinions on cruise tourism, who've done it before, are changing right now as a result of the various cruise lines continuously suspending um, the resumption of activity uh, because you know countries like the United States. Uh, do not want them to be using their country as a home port for the moment. Um, in the case of Belize, right, Norwegian Cruise Line is going to be resuming travel here, supposedly, um, as of last week in June. And now they will be departing from Jamaica. And I don't know if you saw, but Jamaica gave a nicely sweet deal. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Norwegian gave a nice sweet deal to Jamaica in the form of 1 million USD for COVID-19 re relief. Um, and what's funny about that, well, not funny, it's sick, but it's almost like they're preparing them for the COVID the cruise ships will bring um, mm -hmm. because so far the cruise industry, um, a lot of the lines are not requiring that people be vaccinated to use them. So we don't know how that's going to turn out. It might be an immediate outbreak, might be a super spreader event when they get here to Belize and they try to come to our ports. No idea. There's not really any discussion on that at the moment. That's crazy. I mean, $1 million during this time, I, I think even Belize would take it. And I mean, of course. So we probably <laughs> stretch out our hand right now and just be like, come on. <laughs> Come on, give like, that to me. Why would I not start yet? Like, with a wait this long time. I mean, yeah. Then. Yeah, I think it's because we're, yeah, we wouldn't know what to do with that money for COVID-19 right now, though. We have uh, we have vaccines that are not being used at the moment. And they're uh, expiring. They're <laughs> soon about to expire. Yeah, so who knows? Um, but we want to jump into our next segment now. As I mentioned at the top of the show, on Wednesday April 21st, Michael Ashcraft, a well-known English entrepreneur of a controversial reputation in Belize, was a guest on the morning show, Open Your Eye. And he spoke about a lot of things, um, a lot of his investments, a lot of his uh, fingers in the pie of Belize. And one of the investments he spoke about was the Port of Belize which is one of three ports currently undergoing consideration for development. Um, it's the only pre-existing port. Um, it's one of the main ports by which Belize receives and exports goods. Um, but so far they ha have not been a cruise port and the port that they have proposed um, is going to extend their port in order to carry greater cargo as well as create a cruise terminal and a tourism village uh, uh, in addition to the tourism village we already have. So we're going to have a lot of villages inside of Belize City if he gets his way, at least two villages. 
so right now what we're going to do is uh, we're going to play that interview with him. Um, and then from there, uh, we'll pause it intermittently when uh, Digna and I have something we want to say about it. And that'll be it. Let's see how this goes. And let's talk about Port of Belize. We know that this has definitely been a very contentious topic locally. Um, you know, let's, let's step back for a moment and talk about what the, there's been talks of a port at that particular location for a very long time. What's the appeal of having a port there? Well, it's not, it's, it's broader than a port. I think, I think the first thing to understand is what is called the Waterloo, propo Waterloo yes. Proposal is onshore berthing mm -hmm. for the largest ships, the Oasis-class ships uh, that will be coming through in the next few years, mm -hmm. plus a bulk handling facility in order to help imports and exports from, uh, from Belize. So for those of you unfamiliar, the Oasis-class ships are the largest cruise ships in the world. There are only four of them. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with how big these behemoths are, they're 1,181 feet, the Oasis of the Sea, uh, with a carrying capacity of 225,282 gross tonnage. For reference, that's about the size of the Ever Given container ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal in late March for six days. Uh, the current ships that are Coming to Belize, one of them, the Sea Mariner, a container ship, is 197 feet with a gross tonnage of 1,532. So that's 147 times less than the Oasis of the Seas. So when he's talking about the dredging required in order to have the capacity for these ships, he's referring to doing an amount of dredging that would allow a ship that's 147 times larger than what we're currently carrying. So it's no small feat at all when he talks about the work that would be required to make this happen. And it's, it's, a, it's an unprecedented amount of dredging that would be required. No, those are really huge ships. And they've been making it seem as if this whole process won't damage the environment. But for that size, really, it, you just have to do the math. It's, you can't. Um, it, nothing can't not happen. Like it will happen. It will have dire consequences just by looking at the size of the ships they want to bring in up until the port. Like, no, that's crazy. Yeah, that's that's something that we we need to be really sitting with and think of the the sheer scale of uh, of what that would require. And uh, industry in in Belize has been saying we have no bulk handling facility. So the Waterloo project is a combination. It's not just uh, for a cruise port. Mm -hmm. uh, so government policy has to be along the lines of do we want uh, a bulk handling facility as part of the exercise. It'll create something like two and a half direct and indirect jobs in uh, the south side in Port Loyola. What does two and a half mean, Andrew? <laughs> Yeah, so that's a big question we have for, for you all. Maybe someone in the audience can give us a, a better response. But two and a half, that is not a number reflective of anything that I've seen in the environmental impact assessment for the port expansion project. Uh, 
and maybe he's being honest there. Maybe he only hire, intends to hire <laughs> two and a half people uh, because it's definitely not two and a half thousand. From the Project EIA, we, the figures we have for employment are 100 to 150 workers in the pre-construction phase, 400 or 500 workers in the construction phase, and hundreds of entre- entrepreneurial activities, uh, which means thousands of direct and indirect jobs. So maybe that's the one he's referring to there. But notice how that last one are, is just simply opportunities. Those are not jobs being offered by the port. Those are jobs that they are believing would be generated, though the EIA has no evidence of where all these workers will be, what all these workers will be doing, and how they're going to be helping to support the entrepreneurial activities that they're referring to. Are they going to be in some way providing loans to people so that they can start small businesses adjacent to the port? They say that some of the areas they're looking at are construction. Okay, fine. Construction related to the port. They're talking about other jobs in engineering, musician, tour services, and operators. But all of these are not jobs that are going to be provided by the port. There would be jobs that other people would have to create, meaning they would already have to have capital, meaning this is not a situation that would benefit people who are up-and-comers trying to get into a game, but they would likely be people who are already in some way uh, have the capacity to do something of this sort. So when we think of this as a job creation opportunity, we really have to sit and focus on the fact that the majority of jobs that are concretely being offered by the port are very temporary Mm -hmm. jobs tied to the construction of the port itself. That's the same concern I had because... The construction will, I think I read that it's supposed to take up to two years until it's up and running. So after those two years, what will happen to those construction workers? And not only that, but like you said, entrepreneurial um, opportunities, it really doesn't guarantee anything. Will they have like a policy set in place where the cruise lines would have to be with an agreement that they would um, suggest to their passengers to go down and actually purchase from these people because I was reading a lot and um, from different places that also have ports and accept cruise ships, especially when it comes to tour operators, we have a lot of tour guides here in Belize. Um, The cruise ships, they sell their own um, tour packages. So by the time the uh, passengers reach here, they already have, they have already purchased the tour and so what will be left for the small tour operators? Will they get anything off the share? You know, so there's really nothing concrete there for us to believe like, oh, yes, we will definitely have uh, safe opportunities going there. Um, and it's a, two, a $200 million US dollar uh, a project, uh, most of which will be foreign currency. I believe it's the biggest ever proposed infrastructure project for Belize. And at this point of the economic cycle, uh, rather brave. So this man is really coming in, swinging, um, swinging like a superhero now. He's coming down from the sky to save poor little Belize. Hundred million dollars. Wow, I'm so impressed. Yeah, it, it is a lot of money, and we're not trying to minimize that. But the fact of the matter is that money only means something depending on who's benefiting from that mm-hmm. amount of money. 
So $200 million, right? That's for the construction of this port. So some of that money goes to employment, yes. Some of that money will benefit local businesses through the purchases of materials. And there's going to be a lot of, you know, within the construction phase, a lot of uh, indirect ways in which this money will be provided to Belize. But, and the most important thing we have to keep in mind is that $200 million is a lot of money, but also like we had already mentioned, this is unprecedented in scale. The amount of dredging that will be required just to start off is something that Belize has never, ever, ever seen. And in addition to that, the $200 million doesn't even cover um, ways to responsibly dispose of that dredge material. Right now, they want to dispose it in the onshore and offshore, much to the chagrin of people who are very invested in the reef systems. But even if they handled that and if they managed a way to dispose of that responsibly, that cost them more, the EIA also does not include any sort of reference towards helping to expand the waste management capacity, the road infrastructure, or any of the uh, water that would be required by this new port and the thousands of passengers that would be using this port regularly. So... You might think that 200 million is a lot, but it is actually the bare minimum a project of this scale should require. Mm -hmm. I agree. Like you said, who will actually benefit from from this investment? Is it directly Belizeans? I doubt it. And it's a great risk that we were putting our environment to with this whole dredging. And then the EIA is heavily based on ifs. Uh, nothing will go wrong if it's properly zoned, if it's regular regularly um you know, well taken care of. Who will do this? DOE, they don't have the resources and the capacity to ensure on a daily basis or weekly basis or however it's going to be um, monitored to yep. that they, these people are following what they're supposed to be doing. So again, it's a really great risk for the bare minimum of a price. Yes, and I like that you said that there would be, you know, a lot of... in definite harm for the possibility of financial gain because there is no way that the DOE can do the required water quality monitoring and the air monitoring that would be necessary. Keep in mind that in addition to all the other effects that the port will cause on our environment, the ships themselves, when they're at the port, they would be causing unprecedented amount of air pollution in the Port Loyola area and in the wider south side region. And this is very important because that will specifically harm people's respiratory health and their neurological health. Um, studies have shown that sulfur oxide and places which is spewed out of these ships, when they are placed in residential areas, they have a hugely detrimental effect on people's health. So these are also issues that need to be considered alongside the economic possibilities of a port like this. Now, there has been approval for uh, two other ports at this time, and there is the, uh, the port in the South, Harvest Key. Many look at this project and say, well, do we really need another docking facility? Now, and all these are fair arguments. Um, and this is what decisions have to be made. Uh, from my personal point of view, if there is no Waterloo project, on one hand, there'll be a sigh of relief. 
because for me to embark at my age in trying to put a project together of this size is no mean feat. Digna is holding back a bit of laughter at this point. Uh, Digna, where's that coming from for you? Uh, I've listened to this interview so many times and I think every time I listen to it, it just gets funnier. Just the way how he portrays himself like oh, uh, a man at my age to embark in this size of a project. Like, I don't know. He He's really making it seem to us that he's the savior and we should be thanking him for spending his last days worrying about the benefit to believe. And I don't know. I just find that hilarious. Like, every time, ah, I just have to laugh. I'm sorry. You would think... No, you would think that he would be the one in the hot sun building this thing himself, <laughs> no? instead of, you know, in a room somewhere just counting the the amount of money from the checks that roll in. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how it works for rich people. Do they get checks? I think they write the checks. I think they get paid through osmosis or something else. But it's also to be, uh, important to understand for those that uh, um, feel a certain animosity towards me personally, is at the end of the day on this project, I will only personally have something like 20 or 25%. The majority will be the, be the international port operators and uh, international investors. Mm-hmm. But if Belize does not want the major cruise, the Oasis class to come, that must be a policy decision because uh, they have made it clear that they will not come to, or they will not come to ports in which there is tendering onto the onshore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being onshore, in Belize, it's about 60% come ashore mm-hmm. because of the tendering. Onshore, they estimate that 90% will come. So there'll be a greater amount of tourists that will come ashore. Uh, to be able to spend money and uh, enjoy the country. So in that clip there, we heard Ashcroft say that at current, there is 60% tendering provided by the cruise tourists um, coming onto the onshore, while with the port, there would be 90%. So that's a figure that is in the EIA as well. Uh, But you would notice if you look at it that that EIA figure does not have any reference to studies done by the consulting firm who developed EIA. It does not have any sort of literature review where it's getting that figure from. So there's a definite lack of basis for this claim. And disregarding that too, when we think about an increase of 60% to 90% um, passengers leaving their ships, that is a big deal, not only because it means um, potentially more people on land, but also because there would be significantly more money that they would, sorry, significantly more harm that would be caused by their presence. So cruise ship passengers are well known in Belize for not spending significant amounts of money compared to overnight guests. Our 2018 figures from Belize Tourism Industry Association 
in the 2008 Statistical Digest shows that in the year 2018, Belize received 489,261 overnight tourists, bringing in a total 819,000,000.7. Meanwhile, 1,208,137 cruise passengers came, more than double of those overnight. They brought in 172.8. So despite numbering overnight passengers, by 2.46 people, cruise passengers brought in only 17% of total tourist revenue for 2018. So let's plug in Ashcroft's percent figure there. If 90% of those same cruise tours would disembark, and assuming they spend on average the same amount as those who would disembark with tendering, that would still only come up to 259,000.2 million, which is still three times less than overnight tourists. Factoring the cost to upgrade and maintain infrastructure to have that carrying capacity, a cost that will be carried by the Belizean people, as well as the detrimental impact to other interests such as fisheries and the value of affected coral reefs for coastal resilience and tourism, it's really difficult to see where the economic incentive is for anyone but the port and those wealthy, other wealthy international entrepreneurs that will have direct access to passengers um, following disembarkment. Yeah, I I would love to know where um, the contractors for the EIA got the 90% value because, again, based on the readings I've done, um, let's take Cozumel, for example. It's near close to home. It's included in the Caribbean itinerary for cruise ships. They have three ports. The piers connect to the island. However, for them their rate of disembarkment is at 65%. So, you know, what does, what does it guarantee us, Belize, that 90% of our cruise passengers will be coming down? And with the whole tourism, overnight tourism, giving us more money, it's not just here in Belize, even in Mexico, they uh, prefer overnight tours because they tend to spend up to three times, four times more than what cruise passengers do. And it makes sense. I mean, I already paid for like, what, $2,000 tickets all inclusive. I, I mean, cruise tourism now, it's something more of like an affordable kind of travel, you know. So I don't mm-hmm. I don't pay for this ticket. I don't yeah. going down and spend more money when I could just stay in the end and enjoy whatever I don't pay for. Totally. And a lot of cruise passengers don't leave the ship because they don't want to experience the inconvenience that would come with leaving the ship. You know, you get off the ship, there's mm-hmm. only a certain amount of time in which you can be off of it. You have to go through um, the, the, the port itself and then you have to find an activity to do. You have to make your way out of the port area, which is going to be heavily co- traffic congested. And then you go to your spot. And you try to enjoy that day quickly and then you get back on the bus and you quickly come back. And, you know, often with the cruise, people might get off the boat the first few times. And then at a certain point, they're mm-hmm. like, you know what? Forget yeah. it. It's not worth it at all. And so what he's talking about here is not reflective of the reality of um, of cruise tours. And given the fact that he did his EIA has no reference to any sort of figures, I find it hard to trust that that has any mm-hmm. solid basis in reality. Oh, wait, I forgot to mention something. Um, At the start, he said that um, accepting this Waterloo proposal would have to be a policy Belize would make, making making it seem that we have 
the last say, but uh, how we are barely consulted for a lot of things. And even if we are, sometimes our words are not listened to. We're not listened to. So um, I don't know why he made it seem as if we have the last say for this. I mean, I, I think you said that you assisted the, attended the um, public consultations they had for this last year. Yeah. And it was, it was hugely attended, the, the port um, the port expansion EIA that was in late November. And it was a real mess. But you know what was not a mess is that it was heavily attended by Belizeans with clear opposition to the port development. But that didn't matter. The process did not stop at the public consultation as a result of this very strong no I mean, I went through the, all the comments <laughs> obsessively afterwards uh, on Facebook, and I only found two people out of the hundreds of people who were in that EIA. Only two of them were for it. Everybody else, for varying reasons, said no. And to me, that is th what the current process is set up for Belizeans to be able to say no. At the public consultation, okay, we're hearing what people are saying. All right. It's very clearly, unanimously, no. Then in a better world, in a more just EIA process, that's where it would end because that is the mm -hmm. public saying, we don't want this. But the so whatever he's referring to in terms of Belizeans need to make it known, we are making it known through the venues that the government provides us. And maybe he's right in that we need to be making more noise to change the entirety of how this process works. At this point, the public consultations just seem like a like just to check off out of the um checklist, like we did this. Let's proceed to the next. <laughs> yep. Definitely. That that is what it is. And so it's not a necessary, uh, what has happened so far is the environmentalists have, have given the go-ahead, uh, but that, that's, not, uh, that's not a sort of a government-type approval. Yeah. Uh, and so time will tell as to, um, uh, as to what happens. So that is <laughs> just a lie. Uh, he said that the environmentalists have given the go-ahead. No, unless I totally misunderstand what the word go-ahead means, which generally or means what environmentalists mean, too. Yeah, maybe he has a different definition for that. Too. Maybe he meant entrepreneur or something, or maybe he meant my buddies in the government. Uh, yeah, he said the wrong word. Maybe that was the case. But, in, but the fact of the matter is that at no point has any NGO involved in environmental or marine conservation, none of them have given the thumbs up on this. In fact, there have been several press releases by coalitions of NGOs stating specifically that they are not for this project in its current iteration due to the excessive amount of dumping that would be caused by this through the dredging uh, process. So, Right here is one instance in which we don't have to say more than that because those press releases are out there. I'll link some of them, one or two, in the show notes for this episode. But yeah, I, I would like to see what reference he's referring to, where he's getting that information. I don't know if one of his, um, one of his employees told him that, but 
Sorry, they, sorry, they, Ashraf, they, really they lied did. to you. That that's not true at all. They did him yeah, dirty. <laughs> poor guy. The main pushback has been from uh, the environmental groups who are concerned about this level of the impact on the environment. Well, the main, just to get that clear, the environmentalists uh, believe that offshore dumping of the dredging Mm -hmm. will affect either the reef or, or, or the sea at that particular point. In the first instance, Waterloo went round the world and managed to get scientific evidence to actually demonstrate that this was not necessarily the case. But the government has made it clear that politically it's difficult to accept there'll be offshore dumping. Having said that, Waterloo has informed the environmentalists that it can go forward with onshore dumping. So that's the situation it is Mm -hmm. um, at the moment. But clearly, there can't be three ports built, but commercial reality will bite in Mm -hmm. uh, at some point. And everyone will go running around uh, having a pop at everybody else. Mm -hmm. But that's Belize, isn't it? Uh, We know know that will uh, will happen, especially uh, when you have uh, three proposals. Major investments of Major that, investments. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and I'll tell you quite frankly. So then what's the appeal? If you feel, if, if you're saying that, you know, you're not the first again, that's, that's what you're saying, um, what's the appeal of having this project at this location? Well, I've just explained. Yeah. Onshore berthing, yeah. a bulk handling facility, yeah. regeneration of uh, the south side, yeah. um, and, um, uh, and, and catering for, for a greater impact because the combination of the bulk handling facility bringing in foreign currency, more foreign currency coming in through the uh, bigger Oasis ships coming in. And isn't one of the things the government wants is more foreign currency? Or is this too difficult? So I shared this with the Global Cruise Activist Network. Hey, all, maybe some of you are listening. And one of them replied to that part where he said that Waterloo went around the world looking for scientific evidence. And that is cherry-picking evidence to suit your needs. If you have to go around the world to find evidence that dredging is not going to cause harm, then that is something that is not a theory of how ocean currents work that we should put much stock into. Later on in the episode, you're going to hear Lisa talk much more eloquently about this and why any amount of dredging will cause irreparable damage to the reef system as a result of the unique way in which the water works in Belize that are entirely misunderstood and misrepresented in the EIA. So what he's referring to in that part is one thing. Digna, did you have something you want to add? No, yeah. he started saying the environmentalists, uh, in quotes, believe as if dredging is a myth or something that hasn't been proven with facts that it can be, um, it, it can have, like, it can have negative impact. So I find that funny, like his choice of words overall, I find it very funny. Yeah. And then in his summary for the, the benefits of this project, you know, he includes the restoration of the South Side 
But again, the jobs that will be provided will be temporary jobs of two up to two years. And there, how can you look at the level of pollution that would accompany these ships to be a negative? And lastly, I just I'm so irate by how he finishes that clip there, where he says, uh, "Isn't that what the government wants for incursion, or is this too difficult?" And he's making it seem like people resistant to this are people who are keeping Belize in a particular economic depression. And I really despise that portrayal of people who are concerned for the environment because it misunderstands the fact that our economic situation is tied to the well-being of the environment, not only because of the tourism sector, but because of the different ways in which it's hard to quantify the value of something like a reef system that protects you from storms. It's hard to quantify clean air and clean sewage systems, you know, healthy sewage systems um, that would only be further strained by the presence of this port. So when he's talking about this and saying it's going to benefit Southside, I'm just really not seeing where that's going to be happening. I'm not seeing where that's guaranteed. If he was really invested in that, he would be someone who would be consulting with the community of the South Side to create something like a community benefit agreement, which would create a contract that would ensure that the community would see benefits from the monies brought in by the port. But I don't think that's of interest to him, really, because I haven't heard nothing of that. No, yeah, that's very true. I mean, <clears throat> first of all, even though, let's say this does happen, there are jobs created, um, these jobs will still, in a way, be temporary, even after the construction phase, because tourism is seasonal, whether we like it or not. So are we going to be fine for six months and then starve for the other six months? You know, we can't accept or be satisfied with the bare minimum. It's time we start um, demanding for more, better better governance and better benefits for Belizeans. Because, I mean, this whole COVID thing, if it hasn't taught us anything, it's taught us that we can't heavily rely on tourism cruise ships have been dead for a whole year no one is accepting cruise ships now so i mean what if this repeats itself what if the situation repeats itself what are we going to do with one two three ports yeah you know and and uh it's it echoes something that ash that both ashcraft and uh, uh, the minister of tourism Anthony Mahler both said which is an acknowledgement that three ports cannot survive in Belize City, and at the same time being okay with their construction and then sort of just expecting them to fight it out in the free market. And to me, that is just such an appalling view, point of view that you could only take if you are one of the people who would be benefiting from this fight. Because in the interim, while they're fighting it out and we're seeing which one of them will survive, the construction and the destruction caused by that would already have happened. It would already be in the past. And yes, there would be potentially less harm done if we went from three to two to maybe one. But the process of making these ports is no small feat. And what are we supposed to be then? Okay with having done that and destroyed tons of land 
destroyed tons of re- the reef system, and then we're supposed to be okay. Well, all right, so the, we're supposed to have three ports that were supposed to help us out. Now we have two. Now we maybe have one, and all we're left with is the scars, the scars that mm-hmm. that, that are that are, that have impacted the Belize um, reef system and the Belizean people. It's a uh, and and the the coastline, you know, the mangrove systems that will be have to cut. So it's it's just a it's a really I think sick it's a way huge of risk. Yeah, huge risk. Huge risk. All right. Because so, mm-hmm. these stuff, our resources, they're our heritage, and it's the primary like the number one reasons why tourists come to Belize, anyways, to have this in quotes, eco-tourism experience and go to the reefs, snorkel. And if we destroy all of that for a simple, for something that's not guaranteed, you know, then then what will our economy become? What it will become of a lot of us that are, have, that heavily rely on Can the tourism Can you have one industry? without the other? Can you yes. move forward with the bulk story? No. And, Why not? And that will not happen. Because for the bulk handling, you need, you need dredging too. So you'll have the same issues. But we've made it, Waterloo's made it abundantly clear there isn't one without the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not the end of the world for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, I would like the challenge of doing something that I believe is right for the country. Mm-hmm. So where do you see this going? No idea. Mm-hmm. And for the future of the receivership itself? Well, that's only a small part that is sort of embraced within the project. Mm-hmm. So. But you're keep, you're still pushing for it to go through. No, we'll we'll go down the we'll go down the process, mm-hmm. um, and if it happens, it happens, and if it doesn't, it uh, it, it doesn't. As I, as I've explained, to put something of this size together takes a lot of work, mm-hmm. and um, sadly. I'm 75. So for me to really make sure, because I won't enter into any project that can't be completed. So whether, so whether the, it happens, uh, time, time will tell. But if it does happen, I will personally ensure that it does happen. No. I hear what you're, oh God, it seems Andrew, that this is... Poor man is 75 years old, I feel so sorry for him. Let's go ahead and make his last days, his dreams come true. Yeah, that is definitely the impression he leaves us with, which is that it's on us to ensure his legacy in some way. When it's it's not, I mean, Mike, you have your money, you know, you're you're fine. You don't have to yeah. worry about this. And he says it's no harm to him. Of course, it's already fucking rich. It's us that will have to take bukut, like Honen say. Yes, it's it's us. <laughs> if, if this doesn't go as well as how he claims it yeah. will be in his uh, in his mind's eye, which is some. Something that has less and less um, basis in reality of the situation. It, it definitely feels like he is using the bulk handling facility as a carrot for us to be okay with the stick of the crew sport. And the thing is that I'm not I'm not clear on this, and I, I'll do some more reading on it. But I don't think that the bulk handling facility is going to require nearly the level of dredging that doing the dredging for these Oasis class ships would require. Just like the Oasis class ships, how there are only four of those, 
Similarly, container class ships of the ever given size, which are similar in size to the Oasis, those are 1% of the largest ships in the world. So it's not like we would even be catering to these, you know, behemoth container ships. So for him to say that dredging would be required anyway, that again is a misrepresentation of the difference between of volume of dredging that would be required under one circumstance versus the other. Um, I agree with him at the end, though, where he says time will tell. And I'm really hoping that more people can come to understand the consequences of this project and realize that we should all be joining together to stop this. Mm -hmm. Because as one of my friends said the other day, Miles, he said Belize is a very lucky country because unlike a lot of the Caribbean, we are 20 years behind in development. And that might sound like an insult, but he was saying it in a complimentary way in that a lot of other Caribbean countries have been victim to making deals like this and they are suffering for it now. And Belize is an opportunity where we can take advantage of the fact that this has not yet happened here and make a different choice that would actually be beneficial for Belize in the long term. And the sad thing is that it looks like our government is very interested in closing the gap of 20 years between us and the rest of the Caribbean, where they really want to further deregulate Belize and have investors be able to do whatever they want. And those, those investors never have to live with the consequences of what the, what the choices they're making. And I refuse to sit and wait for the government to change its mind on this. They obviously won't, and we have to fight them on it. I mean, the government, when they come in, they just have in mind, dude, if I'm just in here for five years, fuck, I need to do as much as I can to, you know, secure the other five if I, if I don't get into back into the position again. And that's really sad, and that's how I see how politics work here. It's more of a retirement plan when they come here. So they're just like, you know what? Do as you please, whatever. And all, all of their plans are just within a five-year frame. Nothing after that five-year frame, they don't care about anything else. Like, let whoever is next take care of this bullshit. We're done. And if they get into place again, then I don't know what else they're going to be inventing. But that's just sadly how I see the system working here in Belize. And I agree with you. It's time that a lot of people to step up and um, raise their voices and join this fight because ultimately it's for the best of us. Mm -hmm. It's not these rich people that will have to bear the consequences. It will be us. Yep. It will it'll be us and, and, and those who are in the front lines of these spaces where these ports will be. To talk about how port developments will affect our environment, we have invited guest Lisa Karn from Fragments of Hope, which is an organization that focuses on coral reef restoration in Belize. Thanks for joining us um, on the show today, Lisa. Thanks for inviting me. So the reason we wanted to have you on is because you are one of the first people and one of the loudest advocates, I believe, um, from the NGO community that is responding to the current uh, cruise ports that are being developed in the Belize city area. Um, so I wanted to just ask you more generally, um, because of your work with Fragments of Hope, why are you invested in the well-being of Belize's reef systems? 
Why am, can you repeat the question? Why am I invested in the well-being of Belize's oh, reef systems? Yeah. Well, um, obviously, uh, even before we started, the reason we started Fragments of Hope was because um, I moved to Belize in um, 1995 permanently and have been doing uh, reef monitoring work off and on also with tourism in the beginning. And, um, you know, our first bleaching event was 1995 and the first huge global one was 1998. And so it was really depressing just documenting the decline of our reef health um, for a multiple of reasons. Um, climate change is often uh, considered one of the biggest threats to our reefs, but there's a lot, right? There's plastic pollution, there's runoff um, from agricultural issues. There is uh, over harvesting. And um, more recently, what's really alarming to me is the threats from coastal development and man-made, um, you know, what we do, what we could prevent more easily. And so that's super frustrating because of course, Belize is not responsible for um, large scale emissions relative to other parts of the world. So the climate change issue is a little, overwhelming for many and you know me yeah. and you if we turn off our lights you know at night and unplug all the all of our devices that's great but you know what you know what is that really doing and yes. so in that context that's why it's more frustrating when when we see these harmful um coastal development practices happening so so again i've been here over 25 years we started fragments of hope um with the idea after hurricane iris which was in 2001 was a category four that hit Placencia and Laughing Bird Key directly. Um, I believe it was like 145 mile an hour winds. It was devastating to the community and um, to the reefs. Uh, in the hurricane world, it was um, a very short, um, I'm sorry, a very fast concentrated storm. So it, it had a small path and it moved really quickly. Mm -hmm. versus Mitch, which was in 1998, just before that, which never really did hit us but it stayed off of our coast down, down by Southern Belize for several days and it was much bigger and slower moving. And so that also had a lot of long lasting mechanical damage turning things over. So um, it all, it, in the context of all of that is um, why we started, why I started Fragments of Hope. So we started the restoration work before I registered Fragments of Hope with the idea of sort of replanting or reforesting the reef the same way um, you know about terrestrial, how you can, um, you know, reforest areas. And there's a yeah. whole slew of things that, that come into play with that, you know, diversity, genetic diversity, all kind of stuff. But the point is, um, you know, we've invested a lot of time and money and, um, um, you know, really scrambling to get this take hold, to be taken serious, you know, to share our results and to turn around and see, as we are seeing um, for several years now, every day, dredging and filling, filling of our inner lagoon. Um, it's kind of a misnomer. The Placencia Lagoon is not closed. So technically it shouldn't be called a lagoon, but it is. And anyway, you know, the dredging and filling is every day. It's nonstop. And then on what we call the inner keys right off of the coast of Placencia, it's the same thing. It's like every little mangrove key is being filled and grazed over and filled either with filled dredge from the sea or fill that is trucked in from, from the land, um, all for real estate, all for tourism purposes and skyrocketing land values. And it's really frustrating that we haven't gotten an overall picture of, for example, pre-COVID even, where all of our hotel rooms full 
No, if all of our full, if all of our lodging is not already being um, filled and people aren't making, why would we be encouraging more and more developments to happen and not looking at the cumulative impacts? So there's a there's a lot of um, a lot of um, issues that this cruise ship issue is also bringing to light, and I think the most important one is the entire EIA process and how NEAP works because. Um, some Belizeans may not be aware that actually the, the Environmental Protection Act was only began in 1995, the same yeah. year I moved here. Um, and so the process is relatively new. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, kinks along the way. And, um, and so I think what's really on the table here is, is the lack of transparency, um, the, the, the fact that um, the most, most of the public doesn't know how the system works and that even when you try to figure out how the system works, there's so many gray areas. For example, I've been in consultations um, you know, that were conducted by DOE because they were required to sort of look at and tighten up their, their process due to the lawsuit that was filed by the National Belize Tourism Industry Association over the Harvest Key um, EIAs, um, which is the cruise ship port down by us. And they won, um, but they, it was kind of a token win. They won on some, something about not advertising long enough to the public, or, you know, not, not doing the two-week advertisements or something to that effect. But all they won was their, um, their um, court fees were reimbursed by Jeez. the government of Belize. And BTIA was afraid to ask for an injunction or a stop order on the process that had already started because they were told that if the court ruled in um, the government's favor, that BTIA would then be liable for all those monies lost during the stop order. So the fact that people were, you know, doing work, if they put a halt to it and the court was in the government's favor and not BTIA's favor, they would have been liable for all those days of work miss. And um, so they were afraid, they never did ask for a stop order or an injunction. So, um, but because of that lawsuit, um, I think that was what triggered um, an evaluation of the entire EIA process. And frankly, I was um, not included in most of those consultation processes and only found out about the final one, which I have to look it up, but I think it was 2016 or 2017. And I found out by accident, we were out at Turnef. And so I cut my short, my trip early and we came into Belize City instead of Placencia so I could attend it um, in Belize City. And frankly, it was a poppy show just as all the public consults have been that I've attended over the years um, down here, down South. So there's, there's several issues at stake. One is when there's a, <clears throat> well, there, let me back up. If you go to the DOE website and you look at projects that require EIA, I believe they call it like schedule one, schedule two, something like that. So there's one of those schedules where it's very obvious, like if it's in a world heritage site or if it's a certain amount of land, terrestrial speaking, or a certain amount of mangroves they wanna clear, there's some easy, easy, obvious um, um, categories where an EIA is required. But there's also this gray area of, I think it's LLE, I forget the acronym here, I think it's LLE, where it's a lesser, it's not as intense as the EIA, does not require any public consultation, and it's basically discretionary to up to the DOE which projects require um, the LLE or the EIA outside of those few obvious um, ones that require the EIA and or nothing at all in just certain permits for dredging or, or, or mangrove removal. And so 
when I have pressured or queried at these public meetings, I can't get an answer. You know, they're, they're like, it's not discretionary. It's all out there. It's all on the website. But if you look at that website and you really look into it, it is highly discretionary. And so that is where the problem is um, um, with that whole system. And then even within, then now even when an EIA is required, it's super confusing how that process works. The public consultations to a T, all that I know about and have, have participated in and seen videos on mean nothing. They, it doesn't matter. So for the Harvest Key one, it was recorded. Everybody was against it. It was clear. For this Port Magical one that was just approved, for example, um, they did an online one. I believe it was the Thanksgiving Thursday. Yeah. So it was right after our general elections. It was right after right. one or two major storms. It was right after the Garapuna Settlement Day national holiday. And yet over 400 people attended online. So they were touting it as like the most well-attended um, public consult. And if you look at the thread on those on the Facebook Live or the Zoom, I think I was in on both of them. There was like out of two out of all the comments, there was only two that were in favor of this project. And yet, so clearly they're not taking into account the public um, the public input, which they should. So we call it like checking a box. Like they just say they're they're doing the public consults. And going back to that final consult when the whole process was supposed to be evaluated, when we brought this to their attention. Um, there was an external consultant, I think, from Spain that was running the thing. Um, you know, they, you know, what they told us is that the public is not making enough noise. If you're, if you're not being heard, that's because you're, it's your fault. You're not making enough noise, which just really grinds my gears because, I mean, we had so much documentation going back to Harvest Key. And then even further back, if you remember, well, I guess you lately came back, but there was a, a big one that was, um, uh, further down south in one of the Ramsar wetland sites um, where they were they were trying to go in there for oil and stuff and they also videoed that public consult and it was they were very insulting to the indigenous people that were against this project and there it was all over YouTube they were against this project and yet that was never taken into account so there's so many issues at stake here and um, it's just really heartbreaking that during this time with COVID with everybody so um, so disoriented and having such a terrible time in the last year change um, that these are the times when they're making these major decisions and being quiet about it when people can't really keep up with their own you know immediate needs and I feel like it's almost a coordinated effort to, to sweep this stuff and get it done while the rest of us are just trying to like make ends meet and and distracted by our our um, unpleasant situations the last year or so. So it's really frustrating. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I, one thing I wanted to ask is um, from your work, I wanted to know, because I think a lot of people, because of the way we are sometimes taught to think of ecosystems, I think there's a lot of folks who are under the assumption that activity, you know, the dredging activity that would be occurring on Belize's coast, they're like, well, how is that going to affect the reef? The reef is far from the coast. Uh, so can you give an a explanation as to how the, that sort of dredging activity, how does that end up directing, directly affecting the, uh, the coral reef systems? Well, there, there's, again, there's a lot of answers to this. Mm -hmm. so, um, so first of all, um, the, the smaller dredging projects that we've personally witnessed um, are never mitigated properly. So those mitigations usually call for silt curtains, like this barrier 
that is draped down from the dredging activity in theory to the sea floor to contain the, um, the sediment, you know, moving out from the area. Never have we seen it, often they're not deployed at all, or if they are deployed, they only go partially, um, you know, like a few feet down or a foot down. So they're not capturing the, the fine sediment flow that's coming off of these activities. Um, in other cases, I've had the dredge operator tell me, oh, it's not the dredging, it's the, um, oh, I forget the term, but when they dredge, they have a big barge and they dump the dredge spoil onto the barge. And then that, all that water in that flows right off, right? And that is just like this huge cloud of sediment that comes dumping off of the barge. And they claim, say, that's the problem. It's not the actual dredging. I'm like, what? To me, what what is that is the semantics? You know what I mean? Like, it's the is the whole process that is inappropriate. They've also told me, um, again, speaking specifically for um, the southern situations here, that the arm of the dredge only goes to like 25, maybe 30 feet at the most. Because when I have suggested, like, why don't you do it in a deeper area that's not around reefs? Well, their machinery is not equipped to do that. So. So that's another problem. But in terms of the argument about how close or far the reefs are, there's, there's a couple of things to unpack. And that is this idea that we see in many of the EIAs where they say this is a dead zone already. Um, at Harvest Key, they did this. They do this repeatedly saying, you know, it's, it's already dead or affected adversely. So who cares what happens to it or it doesn't matter. There's not much life there. This is completely falsified information. So when we say ecosystems, yes, we tend to think about like seagrass, mangrove, corals in isolation, but it is not like that in reality. So we have many areas, um, you know, where, where all these ecosystems come together. For example, you can have corals in the mangroves, corals in the seagrass, et cetera, et cetera. But even more importantly, all of the critters that we care about, the ones that we like to eat or the ones that we like to see when we go out for tourism, all of them use every stage, uh, I'm sorry, every ecosystem at some stage in their life. So um, we know um, for a fact that, you know, they may need the mangrove areas, uh, they may spawn on the reefs, then those little juveniles may uh, need to grow up in the mangrove um, root system for habitat protection and then move out to the seagrasses and move out to the corals. Likewise, um, if you know, if you studied biology, you know about food webs or food chains. And so um, if you affect one of these critters in one of these habitats, you could have a cascading effect on all the other critters, you know, in that system. So it's huge. And then directly to answer your question about the, um, the flows of water and sediment and stuff like that. Uh, we, had, we have recently reached out to an expert. We work with Dr. Claire Paris at the University of Miami, whose expertise is oceanographic uh, modeling, uh, specifically for, for different larval, um, you know, uh, um, fish larvae. For us, she did the coral larvae um, modeling, and she's taken a really close look at this. Um, because it turns out that the, the models that were used for the Belize Barrier Reef system previously were inaccurate because they didn't really take into account the atolls in the right way. So she just explained this further to us in terms of the um, Waterloo Port of Belize expansion EIA and sort of um, just uh, clarified that the, all the data they used in there was inappropriate because they were not using the right water flow models. And just one example she gave with the atolls is that they had um, imagined the atolls were flat 
Um, yeah. And in fact, they have steep walls, right? So there's just all kind of things. But the long story short is that um, Belize's uh, water current system here and circulation patterns here are extremely unique. We're not like anywhere else in the Caribbean. We have these three atolls that nobody else has. Um, we have a lot of endemic species for this. And um, when you hear the words um, self-retention, self-recruiting, um, we've, over the years, um, people used to think like lobster and conch, you know, came from other places or reseeded other places. More and more studies show with different organisms, groupers, conch, lobster, corals, everything, it, they really stay right here. They're really self-recruiting or self-retaining you know, retaining because of our unique um, um, water circulation flows here in Belize. And that's why any dumping of any sediment anywhere is going to end up right back on the reef because of that, that um, self-retaining type of circulation. And so she also did the models for us to show it doesn't matter what depth, um, that while there is a very, you know, a sort of surface current that may be different due to wind patterns, when we say surface, we mean like a meter or less. Um, you know, the people proposing about dumping stuff, they're talking about um, maybe, what was it, like 18 meters? No, it wasn't even that. I think it was like 24. Anyway, she did some models at different depths where, where basically it showed it didn't matter if it was, you know, really deep or mid-depth or shallow, it doesn't matter what, it's gonna come back to the reef. And then the last um, point about all of this is um, the type of sediment that's being dredged, um, what they claim say often, what they can't use for land reclamation is because it's too fine. So the finer it is, the more it's gonna float around, it's not gonna sink. So you can't think that, oh, if you dump it out there deep enough, it's just gonna sink and disappear. No, that sediment is gonna, come right back to our reefs. And um, she also has a lot more detail on, you know, the retention times, which means, you know, um, basically it comes right back within, you know, a short period of time, it's not going anywhere. So no amount of dredging, in my opinion, is acceptable, but I understand, we all understand, we do have existing ports. And so the next level, and I don't see any discussion, you are absolutely right, I'm really disappointed. Um, not only with myself, but with other NGOs that we're, we're not making more noise about this, but in our defense, we've been confused and misled um, by what's going on. So prior to the New Year's, um, Christmas time, New Year's-ish, or even before that, we were all concerned about the Waterloo Port of Belize expansion. Um, and that November consult had just happened with Waterloo. And we didn't know until after the New Year's that boom, the NEAC meeting for, for Port Magical was on the table first before the Waterloo one, you know? And so it, it's just, you know, we don't have access to much information either. Sometimes we get a little things leaked here and there. And to me, this is the fundamental discussion that I hope you're able to bring to light with the public is that where is this information? You know, why don't we all know what's going on? What is the big secret? You know what I mean? Like Belize is for everybody, <laughs> you know, like yeah. why is this a secret? Why is it a secret how this process works? Why is it a secret who's on the NIAC committee? Why yeah. is it a secret who voted or didn't vote? Why aren't those NIAC meetings, you know, broadcast online for all of us to watch? I don't understand. So to me, um, when you're trying to hide stuff that inherently means you're, you know, you're doing something wrong. There's no other way yeah. to look at it, right? And even with the Freedom of Information Act we have, that hasn't resulted in any um, free flow of information as it should, right? I think uh, I think very, several of us have tried to access information um, under under that act and have still not been able to get that information from these various departments. 
And these departments also try to greenwash and put other uh, minor issues in, and um, share them on their social media. And that, uh, to me, it distracts the overall public as to what the real issues are. And it makes to others it would be like, oh, they're doing a good job. We're actually doing something for the environment when that is not the case. Of course, it's called branding. And um, a lot of the NGOs are guilty of that too. You know, when you see people jumping on World Environment Day, or what is the one coming up? Earth Day, sorry, Earth, Earth Day. Day, you know, World Oceans Week or whatever <laughs> it is, you know, and then, oh, we're going to do this cleanup because we're so great. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, like, who cares? What are you doing the rest of the year? What are you doing the week before that or the week after that? And that's exactly what we see a lot of these new ministries doing and DOE doing is this branding, you know, and I applaud them for some of the stuff they've been trying to do with the plastics. Um, I think it was not last October, but the one before, I don't know how to get wooled. When I was just blown away by the talent that they used for do um, a video, like imitating a horror movie. I don't know if you saw it. I was. Amazed. I did see it. Yeah, I remember that I, one. I, I so cool. I was like, well, I like horror movies, right? But I'm like, that's so cool. Like, there is talent. They're doing the right thing. They're getting the right message out. Why can't we capture some of that talent for get the right message out about these other issues? And um you know, I, I really don't, I've run out of excuses for people with the new um, government. It's kind of like, yeah, everybody's learning. We've seen that there was sort of people put in places that maybe didn't know anything about what they were supposed to be governing about. So maybe they needed time to catch up and, and at that point, but you know what, there's a certain point where it's like, no, you know what I mean? Like, uh-uh, there's no excuse for this type of stuff. So I'm super frustrated. I'm sure if anybody else had one iota of knowledge about what's going on, they would be frustrated. There's a, a bumper sticker. I'm from the uh, Northern California, you know, kind of a hippie place or whatever. And there was a bumper sticker I used to love that said, you know, if you're not mad, that means you're not paying attention. And, and it's so true with global politics or what I say, politics, you know, and, you know, the whole economy and, you know, everything that's going on. If, it, you know, if you were paying attention, you'd be livid. And um, so going back to current events, I'm not even sure what all these protests were about exactly. I might know a little bit, but I'm just glad that people are getting in the streets and giving, you know, making their voices heard because since I've been in Belize, there was only one other big protest I remember. And um, uh, I believe it was also, it was under the, the Musa administration, no? And I can't remember what the protest was per se, but I remember they met light some fire, some tires on fire on a bridge in Belize City. Yeah. And I remember the famous quote afterwards was, this one blow over like a lee breeze. And you yes. know what? It did. It yeah. did. And I just felt so disheartened, you know. But when I've tried to engage um, community members where I am on the peninsula here, you know, when you talk to them, they're mad about, you know, some of the stuff that's happening to their environment. They're irate. They're mad. But when you ask them for go to the news or go to a camera or, you know, give their opinion, you know what they all say? You know, Mata government will do whatever they want to do, you know, matter what we say. And most of the people I know, they don't even vote. They're like, what's the point of voting? Because you know, it doesn't matter, you know, people pay for their votes and same one in, same one out, everyone's in it for yourself. You know what I heard when I first came here and I am going to ask them, what's the difference between PUP and UDP? You know, like, well, 20 years ago, or even now, there is a little bit of um, subject matter or issues that divide Democrats and Republicans in the U.S., although, you know, it's often a case of the lesser evils. But when I asked about how do you define PUP and UDP down here, like what's the difference of the two parties when I first came here, they're like, 
there's no difference. They call it the five-year retirement plan. Like you get in, you get what you could, and you get out because you don't know like the next <laughs> one will get elected. But since I've been here, you know, that's changed, right? Because the, the UDP was um, re-elected a few times in a row, right? So, but, it, but it's frustrating, yeah. That I don't think the parties stand for anything. I don't think they stand for particular issues um, in terms of trade, in terms of agriculture, in terms of environment. And as you know, um, recently I've heard from this current administration, they've said point blank that the economy is more important than the environment. And when they say that and admit that, it's just kind of like you left speechless. Like, how do you yeah. even address that? You know, if we don't have an environment, we don't have an economy. So yeah. I don't even know how you go from there, you know? Totally, totally. It's, it's, a, it, it's a statement that really fails to recognize how we are, our, our well-being is linked to the environment's well-being, how we are the environment. And, uh, and it, I don't, it makes me wonder the, the, uh, the, the type of education and ethics that, that a lot of these representatives uh, come into these positions with. Yeah, and um, well, now we have uh, a lot of ports that are have been given the green light. So, and we were talking about dredging. So, Miss Lisa, based on your work and observations on the status of our reef, how do you believe that this port construction will impact the reef? So the port construction is one thing and it's all negative. I have nothing positive to say about any port construction. Um, I do wanna um, reiterate what I was beginning to say is that with the existing ports, we do know there needs to be maintenance dredging. And what, what I wanted to highlight in the discussion we're not hearing is what is the appropriate way to do that? Because when they've dredged down here by Big Creek Port, they've done it wrong. So they dumped it all on the mangroves, they killed out the mangroves, they killed out a lot of the, the fishers between Monkey River and here that use some of these sites for fishing. And there were complaints several years ago and we sent those complaints in. It came up again just the other day from a different, um, um, a community member down here who asked me about it. And I showed her the whole email thread from, it wasn't that long ago, maybe 2018, 2019. And they did have a permit to do it, but nobody was following up on it. So again, there's so many things to unpack in this issue. So going back to DOE and enforcement and um, monitoring, they don't have a big staff. You know, the last I heard, there was like five of them for the whole country or something like that, right? So it's not even realistic that they're that there's all these different projects that have ECPs, that, which is the Environmental Compliance Plan, which require follow-up monitoring. You know, how are five people for the whole entire country gonna do this? When I looked at the, the approved ECPs for Stan Creek the other day, it was like 15 pages long. And then, as you know, many times they use different names, so it's hard to know like the name of the project versus the name of the developer or project on the ECP, super confusing. But to answer your question more directly, it's not just the port dredging or the port installation of new ports, right? Remember I was starting to say, and you were too, about the cumulative effect. So if we go back to the resort analogy here on the peninsula, every time they do an EIA public consult for some big resort and they look at like the traffic congestion, the crime, the water usage, um, the, the solid waste increase, you know, impacts on schools or employees coming in. They look at it as if that one resort is the only change happening on the peninsula, when in reality, there's cumulative effects because of so much, 
immigration outside a resource as well as multiple other projects going on. And the same thing what happened with Harvest Key was when they looked at the EIA, they only looked at the effects of creating that port at Harvest Key. They never addressed the effects of the cruise ship daily visitors. What would happen to Red Bank? What would happen to the spice farm? What would happen to the nearby archaeological sites? What would happen to our, our reef sites when suddenly it's impacted with this huge amount of people that it never saw before? And that wasn't even in the EIA or the ECP. It was never addressed. And so the idea of this cumulative, all these different cruise ships is just, it's just, again, it's so many issues to unpack. It's like, First of all, the eco economics don't make sense. Cruise ship is out everywhere. I mean, before COVID, they were a petri dish for all kinds of other viruses, you know. Um, and there's also been tons and tons of studies that show cruise ship visitors barely drop, what, 20 US per person or maybe at the most 50, you know, for the day. And then of that, how much you think really translates to the, the average person in Belize, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And what really, really also bothers me is that I sent you the article that showed how much the NCL big week was making even during COVID. I don't know if you saw that article. Yeah, I did see it. Yeah, the yeah, Norwegian up, cruise it's line. Just, it's mind-boggling. I mean, yeah. one man alone was pulling in all these millions and billions of dollars that only went up during COVID, not down, yet he's laying off all these people. That's why mm -hmm. I really wish someone would look at the Harvest Key is opening back, you know. Yes, uh, I uh, yes. July or August. July. I, I wish somebody would just do the simple math. How many Belizeans are employed? do their combined yearly salary, what is that? And then compare it to the CEO guy or the, or the stocks or whatever. I bet you anything, it's gonna be like one iota of what that company is making. I and, think you and, can do that, Matt. Yeah, and it, it's not, this is not news. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like this has been around and that's what frustrates me with decision makers here in Belize is that, and you know, why this is such an irritating issue is because we went through this with Harvest Key for so long and we thought we actually had a chance of winning that battle and we did not, we did not win it. And it really divided our community, right? They really divide and conquer. They said it was like all the expats that don't want to see their paradise ruined. Mm. They don't because they really pushed this whole jobs issue and they mm. were like, the locals want it because they want a job. In the beginning, it was going to be like 3,000 jobs. Then it was going to be 1,800 jobs. I don't really know what it is. And then, you know, down here, Belizeans are not allowed to go to Harvest Key, right? It's like you can't go there. I mean, they actually station people there and like try and move skiffs off, which is totally illegal. You know what I mean? Like you can be in the water anywhere. It's just ridiculous. So, you know, um, but anyway, they, they really use that division to, and we already had a divide between, you know, expats and locals, if you want to call it like that. But this, the harvest key thing really, really, um, really accentuated that, you know, and, and, you know, they labeled you know, any non-native, non-born Belizean as, um, you know, tree hugger and don't want to share paradise and, you know, this whole kind of thing, um, which just really um, glosses over um, the long-term detrimental effects to everybody that lives here by losing um, uh, key roles that the environment plays for everyone. So back to your main question, it's cumulative, right? So yeah. it's not just a matter of putting in this port or that port. It's not just a matter of if it's like three or five or six ports or whatever the number is going to be, which doesn't make any sense at all. 
Um, but it's, it's after, it's what happens after as well. It just doesn't make any sense at all, no matter how you look at it. And that's what's super frustrating because that leads the, the average informed person to assume that money to make right now, money's been being made on these deals under the table to even to get it or over the table or whatever, to even get it to this level. You know, how could it even be conceived of or like thought about like, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, sometimes you watch these movies and they're so terrible. And you ask yourself, my God, so many people reviewed this script. So many people were hired and casted this thing. And, you know, all the people in production, everyone was like patting themselves like, yeah, this is great. I'm like, really? You know, <laughs> that happened. Yeah, yeah. It's the same way when you see this stuff, you're like, all these people, they have to be getting paid off or have some benefit or simply don't want to rock the boat, which often happens, I think, with other government level um um, employees or placeholders that simply don't want to go against the grain because they don't want to jeopardize whatever they got going on right and that's real you know if you have a bunch of kids or you have a sick elderly person i mean people have financial struggles right so yes. there's reasons why they don't want to jeopardize you know whatever role they have um or job they have and, you know, we have to take that into account, too. But at the end of the day, like I said, common sense needs to prevail. And I'm not seeing that right now. Yeah, totally. I, I just had one final question for you, which is uh, what do you think um, us members of the public can be doing at this time to uh, continue to fight against these cruise port developments? Um, we have the three that are currently in development in Belize at various stages, as you mentioned, the Waterloo Port expansion, State Bank is being developed and is almost near completion or halfway completion construction wise. And then we have Port of Magical. Uh, so where should we be applying our pressure to have the most effect? And Harvest Key. And Harvest Key, yes. Yeah, it's a tough question. Um, and that that is... Um, you know, I think, you know, part of the reason why we failed in the past is, you know, people that care about the environment or causes because, like I said, it's been sort of whack-a-mole, you know, like put out, try to put out the fires as they come up or, and, and obviously that strategy has failed almost every time. It has not been successful so far. So that's why I really think that we need to go back to the root of the cause, which is going back to what happens where how does it start like where that developer first comes in and says i want to do x y and z if you ask doe they say oh we have a guide on our website you can download the guide and this that and the other but obviously that's not how things are working and it, and even if it were how things are working how come is it that we as the ngo or even the general public never hear about these projects until it's at the final stage how come we don't hear about them you know, from the first, obviously this didn't come out of, in, out of thin air, right? This is, all of these things have been in discussion for a long time. So if you really wanted to talk about inclusive, uh, inclusivity and um, um, community input and community engagement and all of that stuff, then, then you would be engaging them from the very beginning, not at the end, right? And at the end, it's just a puppy show because it doesn't matter what anybody says because the, the motion has already been started. And I mean, to this day, since I've lived here, I've lived here since this whole process started, not a single EIA has ever been disapproved by NEAC, to my knowledge. They may ask them to go back and revise this or do that or change this and give them a certain ECP that puts qualifiers on it, but not a single one, not a single time have they ever said no. 
you know, maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's been one. And in the few cases where things didn't come to fruition, it's because the investors pulled out or there never was really money. It was a Ponzi scheme or something like that, but not because our NIAC committee and our government said, no, you can't do that in Belize. Yeah. So there's there's a lot that you just said there that uh, that I think a lot of people have to sit and process because I do think I do agree with you that we have to go back to that root issue of uh, of the entire um, EIA process and looking at how DOE is functioning and uh, and what is going on there with their with what they're allowing to bypass the EIA process so smoothly and uh, the lack of transparency with the NIAC process. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Lisa. I, I, I really value all the information you've been able to share with me um, in our individual discussions and everything you've been able to tell people uh, to our audience here today. So thanks a lot. Well, thanks for having me. And I applaud both of you for starting this podcast. Uh, I have yet to listen to any podcast yet, but I know they're all a rage and I've <laughs> ordered a few. I'll let you know. I think we have one coming out into April. Um, so I wish you luck with your endeavor and um, I hope people start tuning in and you get more people participating because that's exactly what we need is more, more, um, more people knowing what's going on. Okay. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much. For our next episode, we'll be discussing the Gilnet ban that went into effect last, late last year. If you have a climate crisis or environmental story impacting Belize you'd like to discuss on the show, please contact us at modifya at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at modifya. Thanks to Alexander Evans for providing our theme song. You can find him on Instagram at Alexander Evans Music. And thanks to Demi Williams for providing our artwork. Thanks all of you for listening. This has been Modifya. Thanks for tuning in, guys.